Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today, we have with us a special guest. He is Ian Kinney, the pastor of First Lutheran Church in Sabatha, Kansas. Uh, welcome to the Godestines crowd, Ian. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Yeah. So recently, I was talking with Peterson in preparation for the last Sunday of the church year, and we were looking at the references to midnight, uh, and we're, we're really just talking about that would be a, a, a nice kind of thematic uh, way to discuss the end times and that text, looking at all the reference to midnight. And I had brought up, hey, you know, this is you know coming soon in terms of a reference to midnight, which is the introit the antiphon for the introit for Christmas midnight. And of course it says liturgical text and Peterson just went off. He's like, Oh yeah, I know it, liturgical text. That's from the Apocrypha. And yeah, he, he kind of ribbed all the guys for putting all this liturgical text stuff down instead of just saying where it was from in the Apocrypha. And then Grammons said, Hey, you should, you should talk to Kenny cause he just gave a presentation on the canon. Uh, on the Apocrypha as the canon, as part of the canon. And so here we go. We're going we're gonna to dive in. We're going to look at what we mean by the Apocrypha as the canon. Where does that fit historically? So let's start defining some terms. What do, what do you mean by the Apocrypha, and what do you mean by the canon? Yeah, so to define some terms at the beginning, um, to make things very clear, uh, is that the Apocrypha has been used as a word to define a lot of different things. When we talk about it historically in the West and then and then specifically as Lutherans and more specifically right now, um, what we mean are a, a very specific set of books that have always been used with the scriptures um, and they've been used as as canon, uh, though um, always understood as not equal to the scriptures, um, but still having a secondary authority. What we don't mean are these books that are pseudepigraphal. Uh, we don't mean books like Enoch. We don't mean books like the letter of Aristeus that describes how the Septuagint was translated. Uh, we don't mean um, Apocalypses or the book of Adam and Eve or these things that are clearly pseudepigraphal. Um, what we are talking about when we are talking about the Apocrypha are the books of Sirach, Wisdom, Maccabees, Tobit, the additions to Daniel and Esther, and then the books of Judith and Baruch. All right. So these are typically the books that we think of as, I guess, American Protestants, as that's part of the Catholic Bible not part of our right. Bible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, 
so what do you mean then by distinguishing them between a part of the canon and of lesser authority or of a different authority than scripture itself? So typically, I think guys use scripture and canon almost interchangeably. So we do. how do those yeah. terms interact? So we we have the word canon in the Bible a couple times. We have it in uh, we have it in the book of Ezekiel, um, uh, and it's it's cane, uh, and then it's translated in the Greek kanon. We have it as canon. The word just means the standard to which other things are measured. Think about a meter stick or a measuring tape. Um, it's just a measuring standard. It's the rule against which our beliefs and our practices and our our doctrines are judged. Um, and so what we mean is that these books that the Apocrypha is canon is that these books are books by which our doctrine is judged, our practice is considered, and, and all of these things, although they do not override the authority that the scriptures have. And even within the scriptures, there is still a tiered system. You know, you don't right. you don't stand up for the reading of Revelation on Sunday morning. Uh, why is that? Mm-hmm. It's because Matthew has a more primary authority. Or, you know, when Jesus fights with the Pharisees, um, he's not really always fighting with them from the book of Nahum. He's fighting with them from Moses or something even more preexistent. So there still is a tiered system within the scriptures. And then also beyond that, there is uh, there is the tiered sisters of the tiered system of the canon of the apocrypha as well. So they are secondary. Um, what the what the papists call deuterocanonical, I don't think is a terrible word. They are a secondary mm-hmm. um, tier in the canon, um, following behind the books of sacred scripture. Okay, so by way of analogy, you brought up the the the, the tiered authority system within the scriptures themselves, like dominical mandate, mm-hmm. apostolic instruction, and then uh, apostolic example. Uh, is that how we should view that tiered system of scripture versus the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha? Yeah, that's how Chemnitz does. So when Chemnitz writes his Enchiridion, he uses the word Apocrypha in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So when Chemnitz writes this Enchiridion, um, that as I understand, it was kind of the, uh, the, uh, testing manual for all the pastors every year that the bishop would examine them on when he has the list of the books of the Bible, he has the old Testament and then he has the old Testament apocrypha, including the books we mentioned. He mm-hmm. also does this in the new Testament books that we call antilegomena Chemnitz defines as new Testament apocrypha. Mm-hmm. So he defines even those books of, Revelation and Third John and Second Peter uh, as as New Testament apocrypha, having a secondary authority to that which is primary. Okay, so maybe just say a few words for any of the laity who are unfamiliar with the terms homologumina and antilegomena. Sure. So for the homologumina and antilegomena, these are this is a distinction for the books of the New Testament. Um, so the word homologumina means the, the books that we all speak together about and agree upon, the antilegomena. From what we understand are books that maybe did not circulate the entire church as well and not everybody had them. Or there were some of the books who don't immediately give the name uh, of an author and cannot inherently by its own book prove apostolic authority, even though with some like Hebrews, it's very clear it was Paul. 
there's mm-hmm. there's books that uh, have been spoken against by some people in the church, and so those are called antilegomena. Not that they are not the Bible, or not that you cannot trust them as the Bible, but that they do have to be viewed in light of, say, the Gospels. Okay, so when you say spoken against or completely uh, spoken together throughout the church, you mean from the very beginning when these books began to show up? Yeah, from the very beginning when these books began to show up. Post-apostolic, for example, the book of Jude in Revelation doesn't seem like it had as wide of circulation as the book of John did. Mm -hmm. And so these were books that not everybody in the church had. And so Chemnitz, what we call antilegomena, Chemnitz uses a word that triggers us, uh, but he calls them, he calls them New Testament Apocrypha. Right. (laughs) Okay. So, um, so Chemnitz includes what we typically call the Apocrypha, uh, the the things that most Lutherans in the United States say, well, that's part of the Catholic Bible. Mm -hmm. He includes that as Old Testament Apocrypha as part of the canon. Right. Okay. Right. Chemnitz does in line with, with, um, almost all the fathers of the West uh, and with the Lutheran fathers as well, including them usually with um, usually with the Old Testament, but calling them Old Testament Apocrypha. Okay. Now, does he do that just because that's historically the case, or does he have uh, an internal witness within the, the books themselves? You know, we recognize within the New Testament— that th- those um, those books see themselves as scripture, right? Or they they have yeah. a self attestation of it. Um, they 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 knew that this was being written down for posterity. Uh, is there something similar? D- does he have reasons internally as well as externally tr- uh, t- to support that? Yeah, he does. One one of which we can speak of. Yeah, what he received, and we could talk about that in a minute. Maybe that. Every every single Bible that was ever printed, including the 1611 KJV, had the Apocrypha included. Mm-hmm. So uh, after that, there's some things that happen with politics and English kings and stuff where it gets removed. But for for um, American German Lutherans, it was still in our Bibles in the 20s. Um, beyond that, in English, we did lose it. So so Chemnitz is working with what he's received, I and mean, when Luther translates the Bible. He translates these books as well and writes prefaces on all of them. Um, mm-hmm. But the internal evidence is, is really fun because uh, it's kind of like the uh, the man born blind uh, when when the Pharisees start yelling at his parents and they say, look, he's, he's old enough to talk for himself. Why don't you just ask him? It's yeah. kind of the same <laughs> thing is that the, the apocryphal books are old enough to talk for themselves. You can just let them talk. And so not a single book of the Apocrypha says that it is scripture. Mm-hmm. They do seem to see themselves as canon and use thereas, but not a single book makes a, div- a claim of divine inspiration. None of them say, thus saith the Lord. None of them say, this is the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. What they do, though, is that they do submit to an existing scriptural body of Moses and the prophets and the writings. Okay. And so there's a few examples, for for example, in the book of Maccabees, where we know, obviously, from Scripture that Scripture is, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. 
And so without apostles and prophets, you don't have scripture. Well, in the book of Maccabees, things are kind of flying around fast and loose. And long story happens is that the altar had been desecrated and they weren't able to use it. But because of this, the Maccabees go and bury the stones of the altar, they say, in a suitable place until a prophet would arise who could tell them what to do. Mm. And then later in the book, they're trying to figure out how to order their society. And they say that this one guy is going to be their priest until a prophet should arise and tell them what to do. So right right there, we have some internal evidence of the books saying that we are, we are not scripture, um, that there is an authority here, but the books themselves say that we don't have prophets. God stopped sending the prophets after Malachi, and we don't have any more. Another example is, is the book of Sirach, and in the prologue of Sirach, um, he makes it very clear in his prologue, and some people think Sirach is the first one to do this, make a distinction in the Old Testament of the law, the prophets, and the writings. Mm. Sirach says this, that um, he says that you should devote yourself like his grandfather did to the reading of the scriptures, he says, to the reading of the law, the prophets, and the other books of our fathers. And then after acquiring proficiency in them, then, then he says, you can, you can look at the Apocrypha as well. Um, so we have this example in 1 Maccabees, we have this example in Sirach, and, and then there's kind, of this, there's kind of this funny example in 2 Maccabees. And 2 Maccabees, um, it's kind of his own little theological genre maybe, but 2 Maccabees uh, has, this, has this point where um, the author himself says, he says uh, in 2 Maccabees 2, he says, look guys, we wrote this trying to make people happy. And he says, we left the responsibility of exact details to somebody else because that's not really our point. But we wanted to strive for brevity and forego an exhaustive treatment. And that's just not the way the Bible talks. Right. Um, he, he concludes the book by saying, he says, if what I wrote was poorly done, that was the best I could do. But it was the style of my story to delight the ears of those who read my work. And I guess we'll end here. And that's how he ends his book. So this is not the way the Bible talks. Uh, this is not the way the scriptures talk, but this is the way that the Apocrypha as, as canon does talk, that it submits to an existing body of scripture. So it says itself that it is not scripture, but that it is uh, a secondary authority derived from that primary authority of scripture. So that's how the books see themselves, and that's how the church has always used them. Okay. So uh, you've already briefly mentioned that historically these are mentioned by the what we would typically call the early church fathers um mm-hmm. what are some examples of that yeah and that's the tough part with using this word canon um and it, basically this idea of, of canon is what we just have to it's going to mean i guess what we agree that it means because in the in the oldest fathers like the apostolic fathers when they use the word canon, uh, w- what they basically mean in the in the uh, in in the canon is, is they they mean basically the second article of the creed. So that's where this word certainly has fluidity in its use throughout time. Um, so some of the earliest fathers will will speak to this canon as being the second article of the creed. But but beyond that, you can think of you can think of some of the earliest fathers like um, Origen. Uh, is an exception. Uh, Jerome is an obvious exception we, we can talk about. And then maybe Melito of Sardis. But 
nevertheless, um, the apostolic fathers as early as um, Didache, Clement, uh, Polycarp, um, uh, and Irenaeus, that they're all quoting apocryphal books in line with scripture. And what's unique with these guys, which I, we would disagree, but they are using the technical term scripture for these books. We would, we mm. would disagree with that um, for clarity of what the distinction of canon and scripture that we're making. But people like Irenaeus and, and, and Wisdom and, and the Didache, um, they're quoting these books indiscriminately and calling them scripture. Are, are they using them primarily to uh, prove a point against uh, an opponent or how, how are they being used? Is it that, that they would give it that kind of weight? Yeah, they're being used. They're being used right along uh, the same lines as the gospels and the apostles are. Um, so when uh, Didache uh, quotes um, Sirach or first Clement uh, quotes wisdom or Polycarp quotes Tobit, they're, they're using them to uh, make a positive point of theology that they're using them right alongside of the Old and New Testament and not making, and they're not making a distinction that I think it's wise to make, but they're not making a distinction between canon and scripture on these things, but, but no, they're just using them to, um, to positively make their points. Do they ever do it apart from also demonstrating it from the, what, what we would call the, the scriptures, either the, the gospels or the Pauline epistles or the the law and the prophets and the writings? The earliest church fathers, I mean, as far as like the apostolic fathers are concerned, I not, they, they might, um, they might. And one of the listeners more, more versed in them might know, but I can't, I can't think of a time where much of a distinction is made. Okay. Um, that they, that, 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 that they, they quote them and they don't always use the exact quote. Um, uh, they don't always use the, um, you know, the, the, the citations, the chapters and verses that we're blessed with, but, um, but yeah, they do quote, they do quote them in the, the canon of scripture when they quote. Okay. So if they're trying to prove a point, they're not going to say, oh, you know, it says it here in the Apocrypha, but also here, here, and here in the the writings or in the law and then, or in the gospels, they will just do it on its own. Like yeah, occasionally. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Occasionally they will do it on its own or, or this, I mean, this is the same way um, the Lutheran fathers do this too. Uh, for example, when, when Chemnitz is, is fighting against the papists on um, clerical celibacy, he, he, he quotes Matthew and then Tobit and then Genesis and then doesn't really make a distinction between them because he's in his mind, he's using them all as, as canon to make a positive point. Okay. Now, could, could someone say like, yeah, well, he's arguing against the papists and so he's going to use the, their own texts against them or mm-hmm. does he, is there any sense where he's actually building up positively, not just arguing against, you know, not just a polemical piece, but positively building up a case to say, this is what we should believe teaching confessed. Yeah. As far as the Lutheran fathers are concerned, I mean, you know, that idea is, is, uh, is, is thrown, is thrown up against the wall too. When, uh, when these language of the use of the fathers, um, comes up is that, well, the Lutheran reformers were only using the fathers because the, the papists held them as authoritative and, and we just can't, we can't say that's honest. It's similar with the, uh, with the, uh, Apocrypha as well is that, when Chemnitz uses this, what's what's wonderful is uh, 
Chemnitz will use this and he will say, you know, he'll have this discussion about, let's say, um, masses for the dead. Um, and they'll use, they'll use Maccabees and what he doesn't do. He doesn't say that, you know, you teach purgatory from the book of second Maccabees. Therefore the book of second Maccabees is not Canon. What he says is that you bastardize this book of Canon. And let me tell you how to rightly understand this book. Mm. So, when the papers were using this, which again, everybody until um, about 1615, the second printing of KJV, every single uh, Bible had this, both the Lutherans and the Catholics until very, very recently. And our Lutheran German Bibles had them until about a century ago. Um, but, when, but when Chemnitz uses this, he he's not throwing them out. He's not saying um, Baruch or Tobit are not canon because you use them you know, for praying to saints and angels. He say that these books are canon and you are doing damage to the text and the same way you do with Matthew and Moses. So the early church fathers, they make use of the Apocrypha as, as canon alongside of scripture. Uh, and in some cases without a, a, the hard distinction that perhaps we would make today. Uh, you've already mentioned Chemnitz and the examination of the Council of Trent and his Enchiridion. What other examples from really our Lutheran divines that uh, you can give to say, this is how Lutheran orthodoxy does theology. They make use of the Apocrypha as canon. Yeah, so so first of all, we have... um we have our Lutheran confessions, um, which is a pretty easy way to check. I mean, you can go in the back of your your Book of Concord and and see in the in the scriptural reference section where where the books of the Apocrypha are used. Another kind of fun part is text that, there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not sure how that's less offensive that we just made up a liturgical text and not that it's from an authoritative source. I don't know how that's less offensive, but. Um, that's why I'm not in charge, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so no, it does not. It does not say liturgical text, but but it'll show. I mean, in in the scriptural index, it'll have these um, books. Uh, you know, for example, um, Tobit and Maccabees and um, uh, and Second Maccabees. It'll have these books cited. Um, and then what's what's kind of fun is that in the 1580 Book of Concord, um, there were these woodcuts. You know, used for every um, uh, every part of the small catechism. Right. And on the eighth commandment, the woodcut is the woodcut of Daniel and Susanna, uh, <laughs> from the apocryphal book of Susanna, when she was slandered by these two old bums. And that's the woodcut to that, you know, that Luther would use to explain the eighth commandment to kids. So we have that there in our, in our confessions. We also have, we also have Luther, um, and, and again, we, we often kind of hear something that maybe Luther might have one time said polemically. Um, right. But to go a little more ad fontes on Luther, I mean, when he translates the Bible into German, again, he translates these books. And, uh, and we, we, you know, we have in, uh, in Luther's works um, all his prefaces to these books. And when you, when you read his prefaces, of, of all of them. He says that these are like with Judith. He says, Judith is a fine, good, holy, useful book, well worth reading by the Christians. And, and he, he says that, he says it of all the books. So when Luther actually talks about it, 
you know, he does say some things polemically because the papists were abusing these books. However, he says a lot, uh, he says a lot worse things about the book of Esther <laughs> than he says about the book of Judith. Um, nevertheless, when he translates these and has a preface of these, um, he includes these books and speaks well of them. Even one time when commenting on first Corinthians 15, uh, Luther also does kind of this indiscriminate citation um, calling a book of the Apocrypha scripture. Now, again, the distinction maybe was not as clear cut as we make it because of the abuses of the papacy. Um, but, but still in his prefaces, he, um, he said that these books are good, holy, and useful and well worth reading by the Christians and not just snuggling up by the fire reading, but he means reading liturgically, uh, in, in the daily offices and the divine service. Um, so beyond that, yes, right. Something to be preached on. Yeah. Something to be preached on. And, and, and in some portions of the church here to be preached on every day, twice a day, matins and vespers for, for, um, I, I think at least th- three weeks, um, were the daily readings for, uh, matins and vespers. So besides that, and besides what was included in the divine service Sunday lectionary, yeah, things to be read and then, and then preached on in the divine service. Okay, so that's Luther. Um, what about those who follow after Luther? Do they carry on that torch? I mean, you, you already talked about Chemnitz, so yeah, we talked about Chemnitz, and and again, pretty much any anything Chemnitz writes because he's he's just so brilliant and broad. I mean, he's going to have um, just mountains and mountains of scriptural and canonical evidence from the Apocrypha as well. So. You know, his major ones being his examination of Trent, his Enchiridion, um, and his book on the, on the two natures in Christ. Um, beyond him, we could talk about, we could talk about John Gerhard and, uh, John Gerhard has a commonplace on sacred scripture and, and he is, he's very, very thorough uh, on these matters. Um, but at the end of the day, what he says is that these books should still be read in church, though not to prove dogma but for the edification of morals. So Gerhard speaks about them and this in this secondary sense of authority. And when he he goes at length in his in his work on sacred scripture to talk about basically this meaning of the word canon. And after all his long conversation and what he says, what he what he just admits at the end is that this word has been used fluidly. And as long as we understand this word correctly, he said it's fine to call these books. Uh, canonical, he says, in the same sense which Saint Augustine calls these books canonical in in De Doctrina Christiana. Um, okay. But but so Gerhard goes into a long conversation about what this word means and that it has been very fluid in the history of the Church, and that as long as we understand it rightly, um, we should understand them as apocrypha as well, or these apocrypha as canonical as well. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so when I was back in seminary a very long time ago now. Uh, one of our professors um, set out, he was an Old Testament professor, and he pointed out how uh, to accept one of the Old Testament books, it had to be quoted or re- referenced in the New Testament. And so he had this huge like chart of all the places where various either stories or mm-hmm. exact quotations, either from our Lord or from the uh, apostles uh, show up in their writings, uh, and um, is is there any sense in which this is 
this happens for the apocryphal texts. Um, do, do are they quoted, or are references made to them? Yeah, the, they they certainly are, and there certainly is. Um, I, I don't exactly know the history of where this hardline distinction comes from that we have to have a book quoted at length in the New Testament for it to be part of the Old Testament. However, um, we do have that with the Apocrypha as well. So, for example, there's this there's this point in John 10 when Jesus preaches on 1 Maccabees. And we, we miss it a little bit, mostly because we don't listen to what the Lutheran fathers say, and if they're good to read, we should probably read them. But we don't read the Apocrypha, so we kind of miss this, but it speaks in, in in John 10 that Jesus is there on this feast of dedication and that it was winter, which means that it was the month of Chislev and Jesus was preaching on, he, he was preaching on Maccabees. Um, he was, he was preaching on what took place um, just a hundred or so years prior, 150, 200 years prior uh, in the book of Maccabees. And that's what the feast of dedication is. So right, right there in, mm-hmm. in John 10, um, Jesus, Jesus right there is uh, making a very clear reference, uh, there when they're there for the feast that, that is from the book of Maccabees. Um, and that's what he's preaching on. Another place in which we see this is when Jesus is approached by the Sadducees. And for, for those of us who are not familiar with the Apocrypha, the Sadducees just come and just make up this parable to Jesus, um, and they, they ask him this question, of course, to try to trap him like they do uh, and trip him up about the resurrection of the dead. But the story they ask him, they say, they say, look, I don't know. Let's say that there were um, seven guys and they married this woman, but then one, the first one married her and then died. And so then the second one married her, but then he died. And then there were seven of them and they married her and all of them died. They say, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Well, of course, Jesus yells at them that, you know, they know neither power, the word of God, nor the power therein. But the story that they are quoting is, a, first of all, a direct quote and, and generally a synopsis of the entire book of Tobit, where the whole <laughs> point of the book of Tobit, that there was this woman who was married to seven husbands, each of whom on the night of their wedding was killed by a demon. So that's one when our Lord is approached. Another one in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount um, there's, I think, too many illusions to talk to in one hour, but, but specifically uh, the book of Sirach chapter 7. It seems that Jesus is quoting Sirach 7 at length in his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, two, just two examples. Jesus says that you will know them by their fruits. And Sirach 27 says that it is the fruit that discloses the cultivation of a tree. Jesus mm. commands in the Sermon on the chapter six, he says, he says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And, and Sirach says that you should not prattle on in the assembly. So <laughs> those two examples from Sirach seven that Jesus seems to quote in the Sermon on the Mount. And then finally, something said to Jesus when he's on the cross in Matthew 27, they say, if he is God's son, then let God deliver him from his adversaries. And it seems that that is at least an allusion, if not a direct quote of wisdom to, which says that if the righteous man is the son of God, then God will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. So 
Those are just specifically either from the mouth of our Lord or spoken to our Lord. But those are several places in which several books of the Apocrypha um, are quoted in the Gospels. So uh, how does it, you briefly mentioned that, the, you know, we have the English kings to blame for losing it. Is there more to the story? <laughs> Is there more to the story? I, I think so. Um, so as far as the, the loss of the books in our, in our Bibles? Yeah, like, is it just because yeah. we're American and we're like, eh, we're going to be Protestants like everyone else? Or, um, it, I, I think yeah. I think the main thing for us is a shift from German, from what I can tell. Okay. So, so my point would be that Jesus used these books, the apostles used these books, their successors, the church fathers, the councils, our Lutheran fathers, our confessions, and and loads of our liturgical texts all used these books. But we don't know what they are. We don't use them, and usually we're 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 angry about them and suspect of them. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, how did this happen? So, every Bible, including the KJV sixteen eleven, uh, included these books of the Apocrypha. So, all of our Lutheran Bibles, all of our uh, all of our German Bibles, all the Greek Bibles, the Vulgate, um, as um, uh, as as much as. Jerome maybe didn't like the Septuagint. He still he still had the books of the Apocrypha in there. So the 1611 KJV was published with it. But then in, in 1615, it looks like the Puritans and the Calvinists, um, uh, it looks like they pressured the Archbishop of Canterbury to say that anybody from that day who sold a Bible with the Apocrypha would, would be thrown in jail. Mm. So from that point the authoritative English Bible was never again sold with the Apocrypha. So then liturgically, the Church of England was still using it in, uh, in the divine service, which is without you know, the books of the Apocrypha. They were just using, you know, what is the word, liturgical text. Um, but then, so 30 years later, in the 1640s, they scrub it from their liturgy altogether. And then we start shipping books to America in English. So... Mm. Then every single Bible that got shipped to America and then printed in America in the 1780s, none of them had the Apocrypha. So our English-speaking heritage has pretty much left us without the Apocrypha. This is why we think of them as Catholic books, because the Catholics were using the Vulgate, and the Vulgate still retained the Apocryphal books. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we, we can find book, uh, Lutheran German Bibles printed by CPH in the 20s that still had the Apocrypha. But when we make that switch to wow. English, it looks like that's where we... So where we've we been robbed them. by the King of England again, and the, the Reformed and the Puritans. Right. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Yeah, they put yeah. pressure on the Archbishop of Canterbury, and, and from then, after 1615, it all kind of went downhill from there. Okay, so you had said, you know, your main point is that uh, our our Lutheran forefathers made use of these, the Christian forefathers and the early church made use of these. We can see apostolic usage as well as usage by our Lord, um, and they're commended to us in in some regard, though less than scripture, but still canonical. They're commended to us by Luther himself in the prefaces. 
that we should use them. Um, h- how do we make use of them then? I mean, what yeah. we go yeah, from so there? The Lutheran I mean, what are we trope supposed is to do? That, yeah, the Lutheran trope is that they're not the Bible. They're only good to read. And we always mm-hmm. trot out that trope. And I think that's great. We should just do that and read them. So we always say that they're only good to read, but then we never actually read them. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, the, uh, the apostles, uh, the fathers, the Lutheran fathers, the confessions, the liturgy, it all uses this. It would, it would behoove us to actually read them and know them and mark them and learn them and inwardly digest them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for, for guys that use Nestle Allen, I mean, my gosh, they can look in the, in the um, margins and just see loads and loads of allusions and references um, that, that are being made in the New Testament um, to these books of the Apocrypha. And so I think for the laity, well, for all of us, but, but for the laity, this will open, this will open up the New Testament um, in a way that, that was not done before without it. For, for, the, for the clergy, if they're truly good to read, then we actually need to read them. Mm-hmm. And that they will be good for our wisdom, that they will be good for our preaching, and that they will be good for our practice. So when, when like when like Gerhard or or Luther speak about these as good to read for morals and conduct, or or that Augustine uh, Augustine would would say that these are necessary to read in the catechumen, or Leo Leo would say no one can be a good man lest a, less a good pastor unless he knows the apocrypha. Um, we can we can grow from them. We can learn wisdom from Daniel. Uh, we can learn faithfulness from Judith. We can learn to defy tyrants like the Magdeburg fathers did from the book of Maccabees. Um, mm. uh, you know, we, we, can, we, can, we can let second Maccabees teach us that we should rather uh, bend our neck to a sword rather than bow our head to an idol. Uh, we can let wisdom and Sirach teach us anything we want to know about faith and life. Um, it's obviously abundantly important to know the scriptures, the 66 scriptural books of the Bible, but but it's also it's also secondarily important for us to know the the entirety of the canon, which includes the apocrypha. So, um, what what role then? So, once we begin to read, learn, mark, and really digest these books from the Old Testament apocrypha, once we begin to do that, how do we make use of them so that it? it it opens up a field of insight for the people, uh, for those whom we serve. Well, one of the ways is uh, to touch base with Grammans and the Lutheran Missile Project guys, and uh, and they are doing really uh, extensive, extensive work um, on the use of this uh, in the in the historic. Uh, the historic liturgies and lectionaries of the daily offices and the Sunday divine services. And so everything from the readings for the saints days um, to uh, um, to um, uh, the collects or the introits or um, the alleluias are all these parts that are marked for us as liturgical texts that are um, quite regular, um, quite regular in our regular liturgy. Um, we can use them in the daily lectionary, use them in our own Lectio Continua and use them in the liturgy um, to help to help inform us never to override um, scriptural dogmas and doctrines, but to um, be handmaidens that uplift and support them. Uh, and, and then we can, we can use them as, as Gerhard would say for faith and morals um, that, that these, these, 
these people in the Apocrypha, Judith and Susanna, for example, come to mind. Judith and Susanna that are just heralded as these beautiful, pious, believing women. Um, and that they are, they are uh, at times that they are degraded for that, but that they are still faithful. Or that Maccabees, and they, again, they themselves say there was no prophet. So they're kind of, you know, playing fast and loose with some things and they make some mistakes, I think. But they were in the face of severe tyranny to where if you got your child circumcised, your child was going to be murdered and hung around your neck as a necklace <laughs> just for being faithful to, to Moses. Right. And so how much can we learn from that in the face of, of tyranny of people who want to, whatever it might be, castrate our children, burn our Bibles, put us in concentration camps, whatever it might be, how much can we learn from Maccabees to be faithful and, and, and listen to the words of Maccabees and say, anybody who is actually zealous for the law of God and the covenant of the Lord, follow me. We can, we can learn from these men, from these women to be faithful to God's word, just as they were. So outside of the Lutheran Missile Project, are there any reading plans for pastors or laity that you'd point them to, to begin incorporating this into their, their daily devotional or daily studies of yeah. the canon? Yeah, there are. Um, uh, so one one is really easy, and it's probably my biggest recommendation is that you can you can just go on CPH and buy the apocrypha with Lutheran study notes. Um, there's some reasons that the editors of of this volume say it was not included in our Lutheran study Bible, although they did seriously consider it from what these uh, notes say. Um, there's some reasons they didn't include it, but they do include this volume, and this volume, um, the apocrypha with Lutheran. Uh, study notes is really exceptional. And and right there in the beginning, it has a reading plan for 20 weeks. And so it has a reading plan uh, that you can add on to your Lectio Continua, uh, add on to your daily readings. And, 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 and what it has very nicely is that it has, you know, it has in the morning, a reading from the Apocrypha, in the evening, a reading from one of the books of scripture. And so oh. that is a wonderful reading guide um, um, that you can use to kind of help you get through these books and see the beauty and wisdom therein. Or that's my primary recommendation. Or there are several books, whether it's NKJV, um, RSV, or ESV, that you you can you can you can buy a copy of of the canon with the sixty six books of Scripture and the Apocrypha um, therein as well. So kind of like Augustine, pick it up and read. <laughs> yeah. Tole lege. Tole lege. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, you know, the, uh, the men in Josiah's day, they, they found the book of the scriptures that no one had read in a hundred years. And, uh, it's, it's kind of similar for us again, though it's not scripture. It's, it's been a hundred years since, since Lutherans have really, um, found the book and, and, and taken these up and, and read them. Um, and that is a divergence from everything the church has ever done since the days of the apostles themselves. And so that is something I think it could be wise to amend. Yeah. Is there any sense in which you have gathered that um, besides missing out on what all of our forebears have said is good, that you can actually grasp onto and say, this has had a deleterious effect by not reading the Apocrypha? Is there any... um, uh, mindset or framework of understanding that we've just lost because of it. I don't think that since we have the scriptures now, 
I don't think most people read those either. But since we have the scriptures, I don't think we can say that we have that we have suffered a great, great loss. We, I think we okay. have suffered a loss, but to faith and life and doctrine and practice, I mean, the, the sacred scriptures are the, uh, the, the, the pure fountain of Israel themselves. So mm-hmm. with those, God has preserved his word in some way among us. Um, however, these, these are books that do, that do teach us about that word um, and do teach us about the saints of the Old Testament. For example, Sirach has this entire litany uh, of all these Old Testament saints um, just telling you their stories in a summary and, and, and how faithful they were to the Lord. Um, and even when they failed, that they repented and praise be to God for that. So I don't think that we can uh, uh, degrade, degrade, degrade uh, too much, but I do think that um, I do think that we have had a loss by, by not having these in a regular um, daily devotions, daily offices and Sunday readings in the church. Well, thank you, Ian, for your time for I don't know, taking up this topic and delving in to it, to, to bring it to our attention so that we don't just say, yeah, they're good to read, and that's all we ever say or do. So thanks for your time, for your insight, and uh, uh, there you go, guys. Pick it up, read, uh, and, uh, and learn and grow just as all of our fathers in the faith have learned and grown from these books. So thank you. Thank you.